Uh, let's ask God to help us with his word. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, uh, you know that our minds and hearts are so often preoccupied with the busyness of this life. Uh, the things we're planning, the things we're doing, the relationships we have. But we pray now in your mercy that as we listen to your word, as we think of the vision you have given Ezekiel and then of to John of life with you, uh, we pray that you would move our hearts to long for that life, to long to know you and to know you better. Help me to speak your word truthfully and clearly and help us all to understand it and receive it with faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how do you describe the life worth hoping for to those who know the grief of loss, the bitterness of failure and defeat, and the shame of knowing you have brought that loss and failure upon yourself? How do you describe the life worth staying loyal to the Lord for, life on the other side of the Lord's promise but not yet experience victory, as you and your people are surrounded by the pride and power of your conquerors, experience every day the seeming victory of their gods, the triumph of their understanding of the world, the triumph of their truth, the triumph of those who despise the Lord God. That is the challenge facing Ezekiel. In chapters 34 to 38, Ezekiel's revealed God's promises of salvation to the exiles of Judah in Babylon. His promise of gathering his people like a shepherd gathers his flock. His promises of new life, of life from the dead, of victory over all those who would oppress and plunder them. Promises the Lord has committed himself to for the sake of his holy name, that all would know that he is the God he has revealed himself to be. But the lived experience of Ezekiel's audience, his countrymen and women, is exile and loss, being reminded every day that they were captives in a foreign land, that their city was destroyed and that their conquerors, the Babylonians, were stronger, smarter, wealthier, their gods more powerful. Was the fulfilment of God's promises worth hanging on for? When it happened, what would it be like? Would it only be more of the same, a cycle of sin and judgment and dispossession? What in the end could they, should they hope for? Now they're questions for us as well. As followers of Jesus, we are not a conquered people in BC Babylon. But in this life, we all know the grief of loss and sometimes the bitterness of failure. We too know what it is like to live in a world where those who do not honour God are portrayed as the winners, the smarter, the stronger, where an understanding of the world where the Lord is irrelevant is promoted as real life, where the truth of the godless 
is the ruling truth. Whether that, for example, is seen in the denial of a creator when we study God's word or in the promotion of an understanding of gender and sexuality at odds with God's creation of humanity as male and female. Is being loyal to the Lord, waiting for the fulfilment of his promises, worth hanging on for? And what will the outcome be like? What in the end are we hoping for? What is the vision of the life that is worth longing for, persevering for? Now, neither Ezekiel nor we can answer those questions from our own experience. Take Ezekiel. He too is an exile living amongst exiles. His scene, his experienced reality is one of defeat, even if he knows that that defeat to be the Lord's judgment on Israel's sin. But the Lord provides the answer for Ezekiel and for the exiles in the vision preserved for us in Ezekiel chapters 40 to 48, the vision of a life worth longing for. In the 25th year of our exile at the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month, in the 14th year after the city was struck down, on that very day, The hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me to the city. In visions of God, he brought me to the land of Israel and set me down on a very high mountain on which was a structure like a city to the south. Now this is the third third set of visions of God in Ezekiel. Uh, The first vision was experienced by Ezekiel at the beginning of his ministry on the banks of the Chebar Canal. The second, chapters 8 to 11, describe the departure of the Lord from the temple in Jerusalem and prophesied their destruction. And in this third, the Lord reveals to Ezekiel what only the Lord knows. Life on the other side of the Lord's victory, on the other side of the great saving work promised in Ezekiel's chapters 34 to 39. That life is pictured in these chapters, chapters 40 to 48, in terms and pictures familiar to Ezekiel and his hearers. It's pictured in terms of temple and sacrifice and priesthood. But it expresses ideas and realities that are abiding. And the dominating idea, the pictured reality, is that life, the life worth longing for, persevering in being loyal to the Lord for, is found in the presence of the living God, that the fulfilment of our longing is in God himself. Now, I'm going to summarise how Ezekiel presents that vision of life, and if you haven't read Ezekiel recently, you might, when you get home, like to read chapters 40 to 48 and test my summary. So I'm going to summarise these chapters. But then we're going to see how the New Testament picks up on what Ezekiel describes in its own vision of the life worth longing for in Revelation chapters 21 and 22. And then finally we're going to ask how the Lord Jesus brings and secures that life for us. And Christmas is a time for rich food and this will be rich fare. So if you have questions as you're digesting it, and I hope you'll give yourself time to digest it, then just come and ask. Now chapters 40 to 48 
of Ezekiel are all about the presence of the Lord among his people. They start with a tour of the temple. And that goes on for chapters 40 to 42, a detailed tour. And then that tour climaxes with the Lord's return to the temple to live amongst his people. Ezekiel 43, as you heard read. And the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city and just like the vision that I had seen by the Chebar Canal and I fell on my face. As the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. This is about God being with his people. In fact, the last word of this section and the book gives the name of the city as the Lord is there. The Lord being with his people is the big idea of chapters 40 to 48. And they start, as I've said, in chapters 40 to 42 with describing the provision the Lord has made for his presence amongst his people as Ezekiel is taken by a guide on a tour of the new temple. Of that temple, the Lord says, 43.7, This is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. The temple is about God living with his people forever. Now, if you've tried reading Ezekiel 40 to 42, I suspect you were underwhelmed. Unless, of course, you're an architect, and I suspect even if you're an architect, you would have found it hard going because it's made up of lots of measurements. As Ezekiel is told to describe something that already exists, that the Lord has already created. You see, the description in these chapters is not a blueprint that the exiles or their descendants are told to build. It's very unlike the description of the tabernacle given to Moses in Exodus 25 in that Moses is told to make this, make that. Doesn't happen in Ezekiel 40-42. They are being shown a gift to a repentant people. Now, as you read it, this promised gift may not excite you, but then think of yourself as an exile. When speaking of the temple being destroyed, Ezekiel had described it as my sanctuary, the pride of your power, the delight of your eyes and the yearning of your soul. You see, the temple mattered to those exiled Judeans and they had a picture of the temple in their minds. They knew and loved its grandeur. They'd felt its pavement beneath their feet. They'd gone with crowds to its great celebrations. It meant everything to them. And here Ezekiel in chapters 42 is giving a description, both beautiful and practical, of a temple the Lord has provided, a temple his glory would again inhabit in all his holiness. In Ezekiel, the longed-for future is one where the Lord would be present amongst his people. And they are assured that it will be a permanent presence, a secure presence. For in chapter 43, 12 to 46, 24, the next section, the Lord provides through his commands the means for dealing with their sin, for their being able to stay in his holy 
presence. This section starts with a detailed description of the only piece of temple furniture mentioned. Uh, When the tabernacle is commanded to be built, there's lots of pieces of furniture described, but here only one, and it is the altar. No other furniture is described throwing the altar and its function to atone for sin, to deal with sin, into prominence. And the description of the altar is followed with descriptions of the sacrifices to be made and who can make them and who will provide them, as well as a description of the location of the temple, a geographic location that preserves its holiness in the centre of Israel. Now, there's a lot of detail in those chapters. I commend them to you, but it's very focused detail. You see, these chapters are saying that the Lord will provide the means that will make sure that the Israelites are never thrown out of the land again, that they can always dwell with him. You see, the life to be longed for is not more of the same, not more sin and judgment and death and dispossession. By his grace, the security of his people in his holy presence will be all the Lord's work, a work to which they're then to respond with repentance and faith. So this section tells them and us that they enjoy this future. They're in their God's presence only on his terms, trusting and using what he has provided. And Ezekiel makes that very clear as he reminds the people and the Levites of their past failures. He makes it clear that this is the Lord's grace to sinful people. But it is effective grace. They will be able to dwell with him forever. The future to be longed for comes by the Lord's gracious initiative as the Lord provides for his presence and he secures his holy presence amongst sinners by making to provision to deal with their sin. And then thirdly in this section, we are told in Ezekiel 47 that the presence of the Lord is life giving. As you heard, there's a river, at first just a trickle, verse 2, flowing from the threshold of the temple. That's when Ezekiel starts to see it, but what in a sense we're being told is it flows from the throne, the very presence of the Lord. And as you heard, it's no natural river. It just grows and grows quickly until it's a vast torrent, grows without tributaries grows from a very small beginning and its effect is not natural. Verse 8, when the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. You know, brackish water mixed with fresh normally taints the whole lot, but this water transforms dead water, the saline water of the Dead Sea into life-giving water. It brings life to the dead. And it is abundant life. You see that verse 9. Wherever the fish goes, every living creature that swarms, wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. And at the end of the verse, so everything will live where the river goes. Abundant life and rich life. There's no want here. On both sides of the river are all kinds of trees for food whose fruit never fails. They bear fruit every 
month. You see, just as there was a river in Eden to water the garden full of trees for food, so where this water goes, the land becomes like Eden. And this vision of the life-giving presence of God is a picture of life at the centre of a renewed Israel. For this book ends with a description of the equal distribution of the promised land amongst the 12 tribes of Israel in the fulfilment of the promise to Abraham with the holy portion with the temple from whence the river flows right in the middle of the land. And it is 12 tribes. And that brings home a feature of this book if you read it. You know, reading Ezekiel 48 saying this tribe lives here and this tribe lives there, this one, it's actually really boring and repetitive to read. That's a feature of these chapters. But actually it's incredibly exciting to think about. Think, think, it's 12 tribes. Even though 10 had been lost and absorbed into the Assyrian Empire for around 200 years. You see, this is the Israel of promise who will dwell in God's presence. You see, life in the presence of the Lord is actually going to be life from the dead, life for a rescued, healed and restored people, a people whose sin is so effectively dealt with that the city to which every every Israelite can come, the city, not just the temple, is called the Lord is there, living amongst his people. The vision Ezekiel 40 to 48 gives of a life worth longing for is life in the presence of the life-giving God, where the holy God admits sinners into his beautiful and glorious presence forever, admits them on his terms, where he's provided a way of dealing with their sins forever, where he heals their wounds and brings back what was lost and having given life to a dead people, his presence renews a barren and dead creation, transforms a despoiled Israel into Eden. It's an exciting vision. But like a seven-day coach tour of the capitals of Europe, we've left a lot uncovered in Ezekiel 40 to 48. So read it and test what I say. But we need to move on to think about how the New Testament picks up many of the features of Ezekiel's vision of the life worth living for, a life worth persevering in faithfulness to the Lord for, in its own picture of that life in Revelation 21 to 22. The vision of life that, like Ezekiel's vision, follows the great victory of the Lord and the ending of rebellion to the Lord's rule in the judgment on all sin recorded in Revelation 19 and 20. And so in Revelation 21 to 22, for example, as in Ezekiel, we meet a heavenly being with a measuring rod and he's measuring, as in Ezekiel, a square city with, say, 12 gates on which are the names of the 12 tribes. There's actually lots of overlap. And this vision of the life worth longing for, persevering for, is also dominated by the key feature. It is dominated by the presence of the Lord. 
Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. There's the key feature. The dwelling of God is with man, and he will dwell with them. It is the Lord's presence that makes this the life to be longed for. His healing Comforting, for he dries every tear. His healing, comforting, life-giving presence. And he's not drying tears for us to weep again. This is not a life which will be more of the same, a life characterised by sin and loss and death. The Lord's people, believers in Jesus, are secure in his presence by the Lord's work. You see, sin is dealt with. This is life on the other side of judgment, a judgment his people have been spared because their names are written in the Lamb's book of life. That is, a judgment his people have been spared because they belong to Jesus by faith. In this life, sin's removed. It will never trouble God's people again. It has, verse 8, been consigned to the lake of fire. And again, the Lord's presence is a life-giving presence. Ezekiel's image of the life-giving river flowing from the throne of God is taken up here and expanded. Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations and no longer will there be anything accursed. The river now flows through the city, And its leaves now are not just for the healing of Israel, but for the healing of the nations. And just as that river, in a sense, turned barren Israel into Eden, so God's presence, the water of life, turns creation into Eden. Nothing is now cursed. Just as the river brought life to the Dead Sea, now all judgment on creation is reversed. The curses of Genesis 3 finished. But there is one big difference between Ezekiel's vision and Revelation's vision. Ezekiel's vision, a presentation of the life of God's redeemed, forgiven people, was dominated by the new temple he described. But here, Revelation 21, 22, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. No more temple. Now, is that a failure of fulfilment? Or a suggestion, as some say, that Ezekiel is still to be fulfilled by building a temple in the millennium? No, not at all. 
You see, Ezekiel was presenting the life to be longed for, the life in the presence of the living God at peace with him through pictures that his hearers and readers could grasp, things like temple and sacrifice that they were familiar with. But Ezekiel, as has been true in all his prophecies from 34 on, has been looking for more looking for more than a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem on the return of the exiles to Palestine. And the text of Ezekiel tells us that. You see, there was, as I've said, never a command to build the temple he describes. In fact, there's never a suggestion that the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem should operate by Ezekiel's rules. And a river, well, that river was always looking for a transformation of creation by the Lord. At a time, Zechariah 14 tells us, referencing Ezekiel, will be at the end when the Lord is king over all the earth. And Ezekiel's division of the land in chapter 48 has actually no regard whatsoever for geography. It's conveying an idea, not giving an instruction on how to divide the land. There are lots of other features of Ezekiel's vision that tells us that Ezekiel is looking for more that it's a way of picturing life, conveying in images the key features of life at the end, the life God brings by bringing his people into his presence. Ezekiel's temple itself was an image of a sign, for the temple and the tabernacle before it were just signs a sign of God dwelling amongst his people, the God whom heaven and earth cannot contain. In fact, they were signs that conveyed not only the presence of God, but the people's distance from God with their graded levels of holiness. Remember, only the high priest, only the priests can come into the inner court and only the high priest can enter the Holy of Holies. A temple, tabernacle, a signs that convey presence and distance. But in the book of Revelation, what that sign pointed to is shown to have been replaced by the reality. The reality that one day believers in Jesus will be in the presence of the living God himself. Not just the high priest, but every believer distance overcome because we have been made holy through the death of Jesus that's right revelation tells us that believers will be so transformed that his servants sealed as his own will see his face they will see his face now just pause and think of those words for a minute You know, we can use those words, can't we? And we can know a little of what those words mean, that we will always enjoy the living God's favour, that we will never have to hide from the holy God again, that we'll have intimacy, not distance, with the living, almighty, just, righteous God of steadfast love and faithfulness. But there is so much more, so much more, that we can only begin to sense the fullness of what is promised because seeing his face is an experience that no one on this earth bar Jesus has had. No one 
the Lord said to Moses, can see my face and live. So we can use these words, we can hear them, we will see his face and know we do not know. And yet, no, it will be glorious because we have started to see God's glory in Christ, full of grace and truth. Now, this is, there's a sure sign of the fall, isn't there? Good. Right. Right, we will. We started to see God's glory in Christ, full of grace and truth. And if you want to get a small sense, the beginning of a sense of what it might be like, think for yourself of seeing Jesus, of being able to see him, not as a baby, not hanging on a cross, but glorious. The kind of Jesus that kind of John saw and reports at the beginning of Revelation 1. Think of meeting him as the one who loved you, called you, kept you, raised you, who knows you. And then know that that is only the beginning of what it would mean to see the face of the living God. And in Revelation, we're helped in our longing for what none of us has experienced by knowing that there will be then nothing of what we have all experienced. No death or crying. Actually, that's life as we know it in this world. It may not be on our minds, but we will all die and we will all know those tears. No guilt or shame, no corruption of truth, no fear of life running out as the years go by, running away from us. The life pictured in Ezekiel and Revelation, life in the presence of God is worth longing for. For the God who has life in himself and who is for life is worth longing for. But how do we come to that life in Revelation? Now that question has two senses. How do we move in the Bible from the picture of that life with the temple to the picture of that life without the temple? From a picture of that life focused on the 12 tribes of Israel and the land of Israel to the picture of a new heaven and earth with people from every nation and race. That's the first question. And secondly, how do you and I come to share in that life, to have confidence that one day God will wipe every tear from our eye? The answer to both questions is the life-giving presence of God come amongst us that we remember at Christmas. You see, Jesus brings and secures that life for us. Jesus is God-present with us. Remember what the angel said to Joseph about his pregnant fiancée Mary? She will bear a son and you shall call him this name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And Matthew goes on to add, all this took place to fulfil what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus is God with us. 
Wherever he is, the Lord is there. Already in Jesus, you start to see God fulfilling his promises. In Ezekiel 40 to 48, Jesus himself used the image of the temple to reveal his reality when challenged about his behaviour in cleansing the temple. What sign, they say, do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, look, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. You see, what the temple was a sign of, the Lord Jesus, the incarnate, who is God from God, is in reality. God come amongst his people, present amongst his people. And the Lord Jesus continues to be God present with his people always. As he's about to ascend, he says, I am with you always to the end of the age. I am with you always. What Ezekiel's vision of the temple was speaking of, Jesus is now for his people, the Lord amongst his people always. Now, how can that be? Well, it's because of who Jesus is and of because of what he's done. It's because Jesus has dealt with our sin forever and so made us a fit place for the Holy Spirit of God. You see, the New Testament proclaims over and over again that Jesus saves us from our sin. Remember, that's his name. You will call him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. It's the gospel, isn't it, that Christ died for our sins. And the author of Hebrews presents that reality in terms familiar to Ezekiel's readers, in terms drawn from temple and sacrifice. He teaches us that Jesus is the priest and the sacrifice that have made sinners holy, fit to be in the presence of the living, holy God. Hebrews 9 says, Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And by that sacrifice, Hebrews 10, we have been sanctified. That is, believers in Jesus have been made holy, fit for the presence of the Holy God. In his Son, the Holy God has taken the initiative, has come amongst us and made us fit to live in his presence forever as he promised, and his presence, the presence of God amongst us, is life-giving. The Lord Jesus gives life now, eternal life, that guarantees our sharing in the life to come, the life of the new heaven and earth. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life, guaranteed the life that is on the other side of judgment and Jesus says it starts now. And drawing on Ezekiel's picture, Jesus says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus gives the living water 
as he gives the Spirit. This he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. The Spirit Jesus gives is the river of life that transforms our dead hearts to living, fruitful hearts. And the life of God in us, the Spirit in us, guarantees our sharing in the life of the new heaven and earth, the life the Spirit teaches us to long for. It's because of Jesus, who he is and what he's done, that we no longer need a temple that is a presence that communicates distance. So effective is Jesus' work in dealing with our sin that even now we can be called, and we are called in the New Testament, the temple of God, as those in whom by grace God dwells by his spirit who together are being built into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. Jesus, God with us, secures life for us now and he secures the life that awaits us in the new heaven and earth, life in transformed and resurrected bodies, life in the presence of God himself. This life he gives to everyone who will turn away from sin, from ignoring God, rebelling against God, believing what they like about God, who will turn away from being Lord of their own lives, to confess that Jesus is Lord and to trust him, that he will forgive their sins and raise them from the dead. And the Lord Jesus will give it to you if you repent and believe the good news that Jesus is Lord, God with us. Well, there is a life to be longed for, a life to persevere for. You know, we sense that, don't we, when we read of this river of life in Ezekiel? Oh, when we read in Revelation of that day when the dwelling place of God is with man, that he will dwell with us and uh, we will be his people, believers in Jesus, and God himself will be with us as our God. And he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. We sense, don't we? the goodness of that life. And Christmas, remembering the birth of Jesus, God with us, actually teaches us to look forward to that day, our Saviour by his coming and death has secured for us to long for that life. That's part of the perversity of commercial celebrations of Christmas. They teach you to be preoccupied with the present and with the presence in the present. But actually Christmas, remembering Jesus has come once, is meant to direct us to his coming again. And being brought to think of that time and of that life through Ezekiel reminds us that it's the presence of God himself that is that life and that it must be God's work, not ours, that brings us to that life and it can only be enjoyed on his terms as he deals with our sin. And Ezekiel's oh-so-concrete vision of that life with its measurements and detailed instructions actually reminds us that our hope is not thin, you know, not some disembodied being in heaven. Our hope is rich. It's a new heaven and earth a creation transformed and enjoyed in resurrection 
bodies. And knowing the Lord spoke of this life in Ezekiel and seeing the Lord's faithfulness in fulfilling what he said through his son, you can actually let the fulfilment of prophecy we enjoy now as even now the Lord is with us and that is the great believer's reality. And I hope you live through these last three months knowing that. The Lord is with us. Knowing that now, well, let that assure you of the fulfilment we wait for so that you long for it. When you sing and speak of Jesus as Emmanuel, as I hope you will over Christmas, thrill at what that means, what God had already promised it would mean when he came to live amongst his people. Life, life in his presence, life forever, life for sinners. Praise him. And in this God-denying, God-defying culture where we can be tempted to think that embracing its lie that God has somehow ceased to be creator and judge of all will make our life easier, resist that lie and resolve to live for him. For life, full, rich life, is found only in the living God, Father, Son and Spirit, and apart from him is only death. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, in the busyness of our lives, give us grace to let our minds, to let our imaginations Dwell on what you have promised us. To turn over in our hearts your good and true word. The creation will be transformed and that we will see your face. We will know as we are known. And gracious Father, as you fill our hearts with the richness of what you have promised. As we know now your faithfulness and the wonder of who you are in confessing that Jesus who died for us is the Son of God and that he has made you known, Father, Son and Spirit. As we know that now, we pray that we would be people who can set our hearts on the things above where Christ is and who know that when he is revealed, so our life will be revealed. And setting our heart on Christ, we pray that we would now live perseveringly for him, live with thankfulness and joy, knowing what you have prepared for those who love you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.